KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. It's just a good conversation with somebody that you didn't know you were interested in. I'm Matt Leon, and this is One on One. I guess just doing it for 63 years, just to be fortunate to be out there with young people, both coaches and players, and being a part of it. I also say that I've been very blessed to have a wife that's allowed me to do this for 63 years. And I'm just so pleased to be able to be a part of football. And our guest this week, frankly, one of the greatest college football coaches in the Philadelphia area history, Bill Manlove, currently uh, an assistant at Delaware Valley University, longtime head coach at Widener. And coach, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you. It's my pleasure. So I know... You're helping out up at Del Val with head coach Duke Greco uh, as we're talking now into August. How are things going? Well, we hope to have a very good year. Duke, of course, is an outstanding coach, even a better recruiter, I think. And consequently, we have some good talent and we expect a lot of things out of this team. You have given your life to this sport. Why are you still going? Why do you still enjoy it as much as you did when you started? Yeah, it's a, a different enjoyment now. I don't have the responsibilities that you have as a head coach. Uh, I kind of help out where I can. I hope I'm helpful. And it's nice to be around the coaches, which are young for the most part, and the players, which, of course, are very young. So let's talk about when football comes into your life. Growing up in South Jersey, were you uh, you went to Haddon Heights High School. Were you uh all football all the time or were you a kid that played whatever was happening at the time whatever was in season football basketball baseball and I wasn't a very good football player to be honest I think I was probably born at the wrong time we were single wing and there was no place for me I had good hands I probably could have been a great wide receiver but we threw about two passes a game and and so there was no hope for me and I really didn't enjoy just being a blocker so football wasn't my game in high school So how do you get connected into coaching then? Frankly, out of high school, I tried to get into pro baseball and I just wasn't good enough. But it fortunately, it helped me. I was then drafted by Uncle Sam. And of course, I was sent to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, fortunate enough to stay on the post baseball team for two years. Uh, Got married while I was in the service. And of course, had to move off campus, off post then. And happened to live next door to a fellow who was a basketball coach and a very successful one in Tennessee. In fact, took a small school. I think they only had like 40 boys in the school and took them to the state championships. All all, all comers, not any divisions. And uh, he talked to me and said, what are you going to do when you get out of the service? I said, I guess I have to get a job. I'm not good enough for baseball. So he said, did you ever think of coaching? And well, Long story short, that's how I ended up getting into coaching. And he said, coach football. And I said, why football? He said, because it's a sport that starts the school year off. And it's a a sport that kind of gets everybody interested in the school. So that's where he's got me interested in my thought of, well, helping football, but I'll probably either coach baseball or basketball, which I knew something about. But I fell in love with football after I got involved in it. Rest is history. So you went to college at Temple, am I correct? Correct. And then your your first coaching job was at Gloucester High School, Gloucester City. Gloucester City, right? I was in college at the point, uh, 
I was married with two kids by then. And so they had a chance in Jersey. You could teach with 50 credits at the time because they couldn't get teachers. So I was able to teach in Gloucester. And I asked if there was a possibility or I could coach football. And the principal said, well, I'll check it out for you. And the coach said to me, are you willing to do it for nothing? I said, sure. I just want the experience. He said, well, if you'll do it for nothing, we'll give you $100. He said, if you weren't going to do it for nothing, we weren't going to hire you. So that was my introduction. So what's it like at first? I mean, a lot of times the, the people you talk to get into football coaching, they played it at a high level. They played it a ton and they transition. Uh, it sounds like you were a little different path. So when you start coaching the sport, were you comfortable right away or was there a steep learning curve? And there was some, some, certainly some learning curve, but I felt comfortable with the players. I felt right away good with them. And I don't know why, but I just felt like that was, for me, was fine. I enjoyed working with them. I had had some experience coaching a little baseball. And while I was at Gloucester, I also coached some uh, eighth grade basketball as well. So I had some experience working around. And when I finally became the head coach at Gloucester three years later, I felt pretty ready. But my first year didn't show much readiness. We weren't very good. When is the point, and you mentioned you become the head coach, I think, in 60, in That's 1960. Correct. Was there a point, do you remember, was there a conscious decision? You know what? I think I want this, I want to do this for the duration. Maybe not at Gloucester or whatever, but... This coaching thing, coaching football, it feels right. I enjoy it. I'm pretty good at it. This is the path I'm going to pursue. Or was it just kind of you went year to year and lo and behold, here we are? Well, I really wanted to do it. I knew that. I just didn't know if I was good enough or we could be successful enough. My first year was terrible. I was blessed. The second year, some players came from the midget program and we had a decent year. The next two years were middle of the road. We about broke even the next two years. And then finally, in my fifth year there, we had an outstanding team and won the first state title in Gloucester in, I think, 20-some years. And fortunately, that kind of got me really started and was offered the Oakcrest job and took that and was there two years. And Harry Gamble, who was a very good friend and very honestly, very responsible for me being a college coach, hired me to go with him at Lafayette. That was a great opportunity. So you're an assistant at Lafayette. How difficult is the transition at that point, coaching high school to coaching college? Was it was it difficult or was it relatively seamless? Well, my first year was a little difficult because I was coaching the secondary and we had never been anything but three deep in high school. And they were a four deep secondary. All four defensive backs were back from the year before. And frankly, they coached me. They kind of taught me that the system as much as anybody. And uh, we lived through it. We didn't have a great year, but we were fairly successful. Then the next year, we had a very good year. So that was a help. Secondary did extremely well the second year, so that made me feel good as well. But at the end of that season, I said to Harry, Harry, I miss being a head coach. I said, I just like to run my own show. He said, do you think you're ready? I said, I don't even know, but I'll go back to high school if I can. I enjoyed high school. Uh, and my uh, goal originally was just to be a high school coach. I never planned to be a college coach at all. But I was fortunate to get the job at 
then PMC, West Pennsylvania Military and Penn Morton College. They called it PMC Colleges. Fortunately, got the job and struggled through the first year. And fortunately, won one more and we lost the next year. And then from then on, we were very successful. Yeah, Pennsylvania Military College obviously eventually becomes Widener as, as we widely know it now. How did the opportunity come about? Was it word of mouth? Did you know somebody? Did they give you a call? Do you remember how the what the origin story is of you coming to Chester? Yeah, actually, I had gotten involved with the Drexel job at that time and went down for an interview and talked to a vice president. It just didn't seem like it was going to be a good fit for me. And I said, well, I wonder, I just heard that PMC was open. So I decided to drive down there and I knew knew one of the coaches there and he eventually took me in to meet the athletic director George Hansel the next thing I know I had an interview now to be honest with you I was the third interviewee and I think that the other two guys were the people they wanted but the first guy the NCAA wouldn't let them hire him and the second guy had too many demands so I ended up getting the job I think I was a lucky guy that got the job so you're a head coach again, first time at the collegiate level. What's that like? Is it similar? Are you able to use use the toolbox you used as a head coach in high school, or did it take uh, kind of developing new skills, new approaches? Well, it took some changes. Certainly the most important thing that I think I came in with was the two years off yet I had been involved with recruiting very heavily. And I felt that the first thing I noticed when I got to, to, to Widener, I'll call it now because that's what it is, uh, recruiting seemed to be something else they did. They got players, but I don't think they were getting the players they were capable of getting. Uh, one of the big advantages I had in the recruiting situation was having been a coach in South Jersey all those years, I knew most of the coaches and the coaches were great to me. They really were very helpful in, in helping us get the players I felt we needed to win with. And X and O wise, we we kind of changed a little bit. I still felt like a high school coach in that regard to keep it simple. I was always a special teams, defense, offensive guy in that order. In fact, some of our offensive, <clears throat> excuse me, some of our offensive players used to kid was special teams, defense, and don't mess it up on offense. And, so I always coached the offense. And the reason I did was I didn't want anybody to mess up special teams or defense. And I was blessed getting very good coaches on the defensive side of the ball. And uh, fellows like Bob McQuillan, and Ed Dinsky, coaches that stayed with me for quite a while, worked the defensive side and were excellent defensive coaches. And they understood what I wanted. They knew where the emphasis was, and we were able to accomplish a lot because of them. That first year, I think you mentioned it, you guys struggled. I think it was you had two wins, something like two and seven. Uh, what's going through your head that year? Are you thinking, do you yeah, have, well, is there any, any self-doubt, any, maybe this isn't for me? Or were you pretty confident that when you get the kids and you get it in the direction, you're going to be okay? Our last game that year was in Atlantic City in Convention Hall. And, of course, we got beat. And the president came up on the stage where we were afterward and said, you know, we hired you with the hopes that we could turn football around here. But there's a lot of people that want us to get rid of football. 
And I don't know where I came up with the courage. I hardly knew the president. I said, Dr. Ma, you'll never drop football here. <laughs> I came home. My wife said, you really said that? And I said, yes. And his answer to me was, well, I hope you're right. I think I took him off balance. But fortunately, the next year we went five and four. So I still had a job. And then the next year we went seven, three. And from then on, we were pretty darn good. Do you remember a moment when you could almost, was it tangible that it had turned around or that you had gotten over a hump and that the program was now really headed in the right direction? Was there a game or a practice where yeah. it just started to feel different? The ninth game of the second season, the first year we lost to Swarthmore. And that was a kind of a bummer for us because we hoped we could win that game. But the next year we beat Swarthmore and that made it five and four. And I said, I think we're okay now because we had a great freshman class coming in. We had a good freshman class my first year and they couldn't play as freshmen then. So by the third year, I felt we really had some talent. We did. So the next several years are eight win seasons, uh, eight and one, eight and one, eight and one. And then in 1975, uh, 10 and one, you run the table in the conference. And is that the first year you get into the NCAA playoffs? Yes, actually, up until then, there were only like two or four teams they put into this championship. But in 75, they went to eight teams, which stayed at eight for quite a while. But we had Billy Johnson in 73 and 74, and we couldn't get in, uh, unfortunately, because I think we might have done something with him in there. But 75, we got in, won the first round, and then lost to Ithaca in the second round. And we then kind of knew what we had to do if we were ever going to get in the playoffs again. And you mentioned Billy Johnson, Billy White Jews Johnson, one of the greatest football players to come out of Widener, one of the greatest NFL players. I think he was on the All-75 anniversary team. Obviously, people remember for his touchdown dances and all. Can you just kind of open the window a little bit into how Billy White Shoes Johnson ends up at Widener? Yeah, really didn't have much to do with it. We were interested in him because of things he had done on the football field. You know, he'd been a quarterback most of his career until halfway through his senior year, they put him to running back. But our sports information director, Ed Gebhardt, was a big fan of Billy's because he also covered him for the paper. and. He really wanted to see Billy come to our place. And he really was the biggest influence on getting Billy to our place. And fortunately for us, he came. Uh, There's always a joke that goes that Ed said to me, well, what do you think of Billy? And I said, well, he's a heck of an athlete. He said, what do you think of him as a football player? So I'm a little concerned. He said, what are you concerned with? I said, well, I watch him defensively and not so sure. What do you mean? He said, he's just an athlete. Well, make the long story short, of course, he was very good when he got there. But I said to Billy one day, I said, you know, we weren't sure you were real tough. He said, why? I said, well, the film we watched of you, you were playing safety and you never got in the place. Oh, coach, that day. He said, Coach Apicello told me, Billy, I want you to play safety today. Don't let anybody get by you and stay out of the way. He said, that was easy. I could easily stay out of the way. <laughs> so what we took is not very interested defensively. This was certainly a mistake because he was tough as nails and just a great athlete. Another NFL guy that came through the program who I've actually had on the podcast was Joe Fields, who is really a great story. 
such a late round draft pick and ends up having a wonderful NFL career uh, in New York with the Jets. What do you remember about bringing Joe Fields in? Well, interesting story there. He coming out of high school, he was a center in high school. Of course, I think only started probably a senior year, six foot, 190 pounds at the time. But Fortunately or unfortunately, a few years before that, when I went down to sign the contract at Oakcrest, I was stopped by a state trooper who was a great big guy. And it turned out it was Joe's dad, who was a monster of a guy, big guy. So we always felt Joe would grow a little bit. And we really wanted a linebacker from Gloucester at the time. So Gloucester Catholic at the time. So we took the pair of them. Well, Joe just developed, and of course, grew and was not only a good player, but a great player for us. So you mentioned 75, you get into the NCAA playoffs, uh, another successful season in 76. In 77, that's when you win your first uh, NCAA uh, national championship. If I talk to you in August of that year, in August of 77, would you tell me, you know what, this group's got a chance to do something really special? Absolutely not. I thought we had a better team in 76 and we lost the game and we couldn't get invited back. Uh, 77, when we did get invited back, it was a surprise because we were told, in fact, we had a letter from the local regional chairman said that teams in our league hadn't done well. So we were kind of on the spot to see how well a team from our conference could do. Of course, that was emphasize it for our first game. No question, I read that letter right to our players for that. But going into the 77 season, I always wrote down what I thought our team would do. And I said five and four. I felt we were that spot. Uh, we lost the fellow who would have been our starting quarterback before the season in our scrimmage. And so we're starting Mark Walter, who most of the Everybody on our staff didn't want to be playing. Some of our players didn't want him. So it wasn't what looked like to be a good year going in, but it just grew and grew. And, of course, we had a running back who had transferred in for that year, Chip Sawoyski, and he had an outstanding year for us. Uh, Mark Walter got better as the year went on. In fact, became the most valuable player in the Stag Bowl. But as the year wore on, we just got better and better. And Fortunately, we were able to go and win it all. We were as surprised as anybody, to be honest. Was there a moment, though, when you started to think, hey, you know what? You look at the way this group's playing, getting better every week. Boy, we're going to be a difficult out. Like, we've got a chance at this. Or was it until the final gun against Wabash that uh, you, you were like, we're, we're national champs? Well, the first thing was hopeful to get in, you know, because one loss and you don't get in usually. And we had lost to Fordham early in the year. And uh, we did get in, which we were fortunate. And we opened with a very good Central Iowa team. Ron Skipper, their coach, was, ended up being a very good friend. And uh, we fortunately beat them. Then we came home and won the second game in the Muds Bowl, really. And there we are at the Stag Bowl. And we locked it out, 39-36. So we felt pretty good. Do you remember what you said to the team before that game? Do you remember – you know, how you prepared them? Was there a, a a lot to say or was it let's just go do what we do best and let them fall where they may? Yeah, I, I kind of was never one of those rah-rah coaches anyway. I always had a couple of coaches who were good at that, but I was never the rah-rah guy. 
And uh, I think that we just kind of, every week the same. If you're not ready on Saturday, there's something wrong with you, we used to say. If we did our job as coaches during the week, you should be ready on Saturday. And certainly we were ready that day. There's no question. So what's it like after you win? How does life change? Well, it didn't change, but we have tons of phone calls from people wanting to know how in the world we did it. <laughs> Other schools want to know, well, what do you guys do differently? Because Widener was kind of a new name. We'd only been Widener a few years, and nobody had ever heard of us. And there we were, the national champs. And, of course, being on national TV certainly helped it too a little bit. But we were just blessed with players who wanted to win and seemed to know how to win. And that seemed to be our issue right through. They just didn't know how to lose a lot of our guys. But it changed a little bit. That year, we were able to really do some excellent recruiting. And four years later, it paid off again. The Specifically, the national championship game, if I can jump back. What is, what's your memory of the game? Are there any well, specific plays or moments that when you think about that are the first things that rush back? Well, the first thing that hits me is I remember so much. I, being a special teams guy, I said all week to our players, they've blocked 10 kicks this year. We've got to be very careful. Well, I guess it went on, on empty years because the very first time we kicked, they blocked it, ended up scoring. We're, we're down 10 nothing before we knew it, I believe, and finally scored and then finally scored just before the halftime. And one of our coaches coming out from from the box upstairs said to one of our other coaches, well, that's it. They won't score anymore on us. Well, that was a mistake because in the second half, they had a quarterback who ended up being the All-American quarterback and went on to play up in Canada. Um, he really ripped us apart in the second half, but fortunately we were able to keep scoring with him. And so until we finally got the last score and stopped them the last time, I wasn't sure it was over, but it finally was. And you kind of mentioned, you know, all the phone calls and the attention you got. How difficult was it, you know, once you do that, expectations across the board are raised. You know, a lot of alums think, well, if you did it once, you can do it every year. And was that, was it like that, first of all? And if it was, you know, dealing with those expectations, was it difficult to navigate? Well, I don't think we thought that it was ever going to happen again. We just thought it was one of those freak sort of things. I know the school felt that way. They kind of said, oh, we got to make a big deal out of this because you only get to do this once in a lifetime. And, uh, fortunately, we got to do it again and could have probably won it several other times if things were just falling properly. But um, it certainly changed the whole atmosphere at Widener around because we were now not somebody in the dark. We were somebody right up front. And you talked about the recruiting. Do you remember like palpably the conversations being different after that with kids? Did you have to do less of a selling job? Actually, we probably did in some cases, but in other cases, we of course tried to get as many better players as we could. So consequently you're still in the selling business. Um, and we worked hard at it. I will say that recruiting was a big thing. When I first started, I had no full-time assistants. So the recruiting was basically up to me and two of the part-timers, uh, Ed Dinsky and Neil Taylor, who came in quickly after their jobs at work and helped out a lot. 
with the recruiting. So it was a tough sell. But after 77, it was an easier sell getting to talk to good players. Time for a break on one-on-one. We will have more with college football coaching legend Bill Manlove right after this. And we are back on one-on-one. Our guest this week is college football Hall of Fame head coach Bill Manlove. So you mentioned four years later in 81, uh, another national championship. You guys are still very good. I think one loss every season. You you make noise in the postseason in 78, 79, and 80. Once again, in 81, it's a different situation than 77. Did you feel like, you know, if we stay relatively healthy and stay on point here, you know, we're going to be, we're going to be near the top of the mountain, whether we get to the top, we'll have to see, but we're going to be in play. I thought we'd be a good team, but we had a great team in in 1980, probably the most talented team we ever had. Uh, And we went undefeated throughout the season, got to the semifinals and played uh, Dayton, who had been a division one team several years before. And even though they weren't on scholarship anymore, they still had some players left over from that, those division one days. And we, I didn't think we could beat them going into the game. And we end up being ahead 24, nothing at halftime and end up losing 28, 24. And so we lost, I believe 24 seniors off of that team. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I didn't, I feel we would be as good in 81. But the 81 team surprised me in that we had, I believe, just 12 or 13 seniors. And those seniors would not be beaten. They just would not let themselves lose. Um, They were amazing. Of course, we had the great Tom Deary with us, and he was a super, super player for us. And we had some other very fine players, and we just were able to keep winning all year. And of course, we ended up playing Dayton in the final. We ended up winning that year. So it was it was a dream come true to go all the way and go undefeated completely. And you mentioned the Dayton game in 80 that you lose, and that had to be gut-wrenching to have a lead like that, let it slip away. And you talk about the senior class, the 81 senior class that just wouldn't be denied. I would guess that that, that fire is lit. As soon as the clock hits zero in the game against Dayton in 80, that that group kind of took that personally, and that was the driving force? I certainly think so, because during the season, especially late in the season, we were either behind or tied going to the fourth quarter and four or five of the last games we played and pulled them out. So it wasn't surprising that we did it in Stagbull. You know, they just were that way. They're going to find a way to win. And you mentioned you play Dayton. You win in in the Stag Bowl, seventeen to ten. What are the conversations? Was it a blessing to have Dayton be the only thing standing between you and a national championship and an undefeated season? Seeing as how they had ruined your run the season before, I, not that you need any extra motivation to go to a national championship game, but the fact that it was Dayton, I would imagine, just had to up it even more. I'm sure for the players that made a big difference, they certainly probably felt that way. I was sorry we were playing Dayton again because I thought they were good. I was hoping we could play somebody I knew we could beat, but we weren't blessed to do that. Funny story about that season, we'd go into the season and as their rankings go through the year, Dayton is ranked one and we're ranked two. We get to one game where we're going to, the 
next team were going to play calls and says they'd like to forfeit the game. They didn't think they could play with us. We'd be good enough. Well, we talked them into playing, and we won the game uh, rather easily. In the meantime, Dayton is down playing Eastern Kentucky, who went on and won the 1AA National Championship that year. And I think they lost 13-3 to or something. The next week, we're ranked one, and they're ranked two. <laughs> Stayed that way, of course, the rest of the year because we did win at the end. So what do you remember about that championship game against Dayton? Oh, boy. So many things. you can That kind of game you can remember play by play. I can remember that the biggest play of the game was late in the game. We're still behind. We're down close to their goal line. It's third down, and we need yardies, about five or six. And I call what we call our scissors play, and our everybody else, the team, want to throw the ball. Well, we run the scissors, and, and Tony Britton, our slot back, came through the hole and made the first down. The play made the first down. And then he ran it straight into their All-American safety and ran him over and went into the end zone, and we're ahead. And from then on, we just won the game. How did it – did the feeling of being a champion, is it different the second time around than it was the first time? Because I would imagine the first time, there's nothing like the first time. And I'm not saying it's better or worse, but it's just different the first time. Yes. The first time, as I said, we could hardly believe we were there. You know, the second time we knew exactly what it was all about and we won. We were very happy to be there and win, particularly since we had such a good chance to win the year before when Dayton went on and won the whole thing. And so that was a, sh a shocker to us. That we even got there, but we're very happy to be back and win it. So. So after that season, you're a two-time national champ, you know, two times in five years. I think in a, what is it, a seven-year period, you lost six games. Like, it's, we're talking elite of elite status. Did you ever take a step back at that point and just kind of breathe in what you had built, what you were getting to experience, the the, the the young men you were getting the lead and what it, what it was like? To be honest, I was so busy getting ready for the next season, we didn't think much back on things other than to build off of the last season. Uh, I guess when you're fortunate enough to keep winning like that, you strive and strive and strive to keep doing it. So how, you know, I asked you if life changed after the first one. How about after the second one? Now you guys, you aren't the team that people are calling each other what's this widener team all about you are now the one of the big kids if not the big kid on the block in the region in the country you know what was life like after the second title one of the things that happened negatively after the second title was recruiting became difficult a lot of the players that we felt we wanted or would need to, to be successful were afraid they couldn't play for us I had players that say, oh, you guys, I don't think I can play for you. you know? Well, they were the kind of players we were winning with. We hated to lose those kind because you're not going to get the next best kids or the kids above them because they're scholarship kids usually somewhere. And so you're not going to get those kids except by accident. And we just weren't able to get the same quality of player. We got good players, but we couldn't get that same quality of player. And does the landscape change as you get into the 80s of the Division Three level of college football? 
I think teams developed the attitude that they wanted to be national champions. To be honest, it was never our thought. In fact, I used to downplay the national championship for several reasons. One, I didn't think it was a sensible goal. And two, it wasn't realistic. And I didn't want our players thinking national championships. I wanted them thinking today's game, win today's game. And if we win enough games, we'll win the title. And if we win the title, maybe we'll get in the playoffs because just winning your league title didn't get you in the playoffs in those days. It was a committee that made the selection. As you, you talked about earlier, one loss and you don't usually get in. So we were lucky to get in with one loss twice, but that's the only way you get in usually is to be undefeated. In talking to people that played for you, is it true you basically had four plays on offense? It's not basically true. It's what we had, four running <laughs> plays. Oh, we put in tricks and so forth. But, you know, a funny thing, we get in a tight spot in the game. If I'd say to the guys, what do you want to run? It was invariably one of those four plays. And the reason was they knew they could execute it. How much fun is it to have a group that's executing at that high level that the defense can literally know what's coming and they can't stop it? I would imagine that's incredibly satisfying, number one, for the players, but for you as the head coach and the person that's putting this together. Yeah, that's true. It's, it's, it is gratifying. Uh, I can remember one of our alums said to one of our coaches, geez, I can sit in the stands and tell what play's coming. And the coach said to him, yeah, try playing linebacker and see which play's coming. And I, I think that was the secret. We executed very, very well because when you're only doing four things, you get pretty good at them. Now, don't misunderstand me. We ran those same four plays both ways, both sides, and we could run them with counter action also. So those four plays could really become 16 plays in that regard, but they were the same four plays. So you're at Widener until 1991, uh, and then after 1991, you go to Delaware Valley where you're an assistant now. Just kind of talk about that transition a little bit. Well, I thought it was time to finally leave Widener, and so I did. And the job at Del Val became open, and Dick Bettison had been the previous coach, an outstanding coach and a friend. I really admired what work he had done. And he hadn't been able to succeed here. And I thought, well, maybe we can change that around because he's got a good background. But we never got it done. You know, we just were never successful here in the four years. Uh, I could give you a lot of reasons why, but the answer is basically we just didn't get it done. And we'll take the, the blame for it. Um, the one thing I think I did well when I left here, one, we left some players behind who were decent. But the other thing was I wrote a position paper for the president and said, these are the things you're going to have to do if you want to eventually become successful because everybody else is doing these and you're not. Well, eventually they did those things. And of course, once GA Mangus came, which I was fortunate enough to be here with him, we started to win and he won big time. And then uh, Jimmy uh, came along and, and we're very fortunate when he came in because he came in as GA's defensive coordinator and he, Jim had played for me. And he won as well. And then, of course, he's gone on to Kutztown, where he's been very, very successful up there. And then Duke Greco took over. Now, Duke had been Jimmy's offensive coordinator. And Duke actually had coached with me the one year with GA when I coached the defense. So knew both of those. And fortunately, they both wanted me to stay around. So I've been happy to stay around with 
all of them. So it's been very, very fortunate. But no question that G.A. Mangus really got us started. Jim Clemens, of course, did a great job behind, and Duke Greco has just done a phenomenal job. And you also had a run as the head coach at LaSalle uh, before they discontinued football, and you were able to have some success, and that was that was a heavy lift at LaSalle football-wise because facilities – Lack of a conference. I mean, the conference. I remember that conference. You know, they were all over the place. Uh, but you had a couple winning seasons. I mean, how satisfying was that to to be able to do that there? Frankly, that that was as satisfying as any part of my coaching career because we started with nothing. Uh, we had a helmet. <laughs> That's about all we had. We didn't have an office. We had a bar or a room, and we couldn't even have a phone in there. So we ran a phone line in there. So we. Could, talk to people. I had one assistant coach, not a full-timer, but he was retired and came and helped me. And we got a couple other retirees that came and helped. And we got it off the ground very difficult, with very difficult, a lot of difficulty the first year. But we got it going. And we finally, by the third year, we felt we were going to be decent. In the fourth year, we had a very good season. The fifth year, we had another winning season, and I felt it was about time for me to move on. My wife felt it was time to get out of head coaching. And actually, uh, my one assistant really wanted the job, Archie Stallcup, and so he became the next head coach. Unfortunately, he had some health problems, and he got out. And then Phil Longo, who's now the offensive coordinator at North Carolina, was the next head coach. But unfortunately... We couldn't win after our one winning, our second winning season. They just weren't able to get it done anymore. And then the league kind of dis, disintegrated with teams dropping football, and eventually LaSalle dropped football. It was a shame because I thought we had the making of a decent program there. You talk about your wife thought it was time to give up being a head coach. Was that difficult for you? That had become such a big part of your life to, to not do that anymore? I thought it might be, but coming back and just helping out with GA the first year, I felt, well, I had some something to do and that was okay. I was comfortable with that. Um, so yes, I do I miss it? Sometimes I miss it a lot. I look at uh, defenses today and I'd love to run our offense against some of the defenses today, but I know better. I'm too old to be doing it. Being a head coach, I certainly couldn't get out there and do a lot of recruiting today. I don't think nobody wants to see an 88-year-old man come in recruiting. But that being said, 88, you are still, I mean, you're out there, you're, you're coaching the, your, your, your ability to remember plays and moments is incredible. How much fun are you having at this point where oh, you're just, a, yeah. I'm having a ball. I enjoy it. I, I said once in my career, the players like me. I, and I, I say that because these guys, they don't have to dislike me because I never have to yell at them or anything. I just go out and try to help them out if I can. I try to, at least if somebody's getting yelled at, I try to pick him up afterwards. That's one of the things I think I can do well without stepping on any of the coaches' feet. I, I try not to interfere with what's being done because they don't need me. They're doing such a great job. But I try to help out where I can. 2011, you are inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. I remember I interviewed you at that point. And in, in going over my notes, uh, am I correct that 
you did not, that was not something you knew was coming down the pike. You literally got a package that said, congratulations. There was a football in it said you're a hall of famer. Yep. I was kind of shocked because uh, our days of being successful were long gone, you know, and after having this fortunate success we had at Widener, we didn't have any at Del Val. And of course, our success at LaSalle doesn't look good because we had the first couple of years when we're trying to get something going from scratch. And so the record there wasn't exciting. I figured, well, I'll never hear from them. That's for sure. But what is it like then when you open that and you realize that, that you're, you're put in that lofty, that lofty territory. Shocking, but very, very much appreciated. I could sit down and cried just to be, fortunate like that to get into that group what was the what's the ceremony what is it all what was it all like well was it interesting they do it big wigs you know it was of course then the hall was at notre dame so everything was out in south bend and i was fortunate to go in the same day as mike kelly the, the dayton coach the second year he'd been an assistant the first year and the head coach the second year we be have become friends over the years and so it was nice to go in with him at the same time. But it was an honor that's just one you never can put your hand on and one I never expected, but certainly I'm very appreciative of the fact that they thought I was worthy. Anytime I've done a lot of these podcast interviews with a lot of people in the Philadelphia college football community, and your name comes up multiple times, people telling stories, referencing success, stuff like that. And the reverence that is attached to your name is universal. What does that mean to you to be held in such high regard, not just by, you know, something, the College Football Hall of Fame, but all these folks in this area who have made college football their life and they look up to you, they look to you, they enjoy being around you, they they honor what you've done? Well, it's certainly... I don't know how to explain it. it. It feels very nice, of course, but I think it's a privilege that I have of the good man upstairs has been kind to me, been very good to me over the years. I wouldn't be anywhere without the good Lord. And the fact that the other people do say that and feel that, I think is a tribute to him. What are you most proud of, of what you've accomplished as a coach? Uh, I don't, I, I guess just doing it for 63 years, just to be fortunate to be out there with young people, both coaches and players and being a part of it. Uh, I also say that I've been very blessed to have a wife that's allowed me to do this for 63 years. Um, and I, I, I'm just so pleased to be able to be a part of football. Bill Manlove, this was a ton of fun. Thanks so much to for doing this. I really enjoyed this. That's been my pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. And that will do it for this week's episode. Want to thank former Widener University head football coach and college football Hall of Famer Bill Manlove for being our guest this week. If you like this show and you want to help us out and you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and a review. Now, you can follow the show on Twitter at one on one pod. You can follow me on Twitter as well at Matt Leon 1060. Thanks so much for listening and be sure to join us again next week when we bring you another conversation with someone you should know more about.